Welcome to today's discussion. My name is Glenn Deason. With me is the excellent Alexander Mercuris. Uh, we're also joined today by from Iran uh, by Professor Syed Mohammed uh, Marandi. Uh, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So, uh, well, I guess Iran often falls in this category of uh, countries of which many people seem to have a very strong opinion about, uh, even though many tend to know very little about that country and its position. So uh, I would say often we see the media lean on their emotional slogans and catchphrases, which makes it very difficult to get an informed uh, view on Russia's, sorry, not Russia's, Iran's positions and uh, perspectives on key issues, uh, which is why, again, we have the privilege to speak with uh, Professor Marandi today. And um, yes, a pr prominent uh, professor in Iran and also an advisor to the Iranian nuclear negotiations uh, team in Vienna. Uh, I think, yeah, he would be in an excellent position to make us all a bit wiser. So uh, the topics we really wanted to address today is everything from Iran's uh, efforts to improve relations with the Gulf states, you know, a strategic partnership, uh, an economic partnership with China and Russia, the tensions with uh, the United States, but I guess well, my first question to you is about uh, the economic integration of this, you know, massive Asian or Eurasian continent, which somewhat ties all of these topics together, because there seems to be a desire to decentralize the international economic system among all these countries on this continent to reduce uh, dependence on the Western economies. Of course, this is to enhance pros prosperity, but also to prevent uh, countries like the United States to use economic dependence as a weapon to preserve its dominant position in the international system. So, uh, and I feel like Iran often takes a key role in all of this because we see these huge initiatives from, you know, BRICS, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, we have the Eurasian Economic Union, which is signing uh, free trade with uh, Iran. We have the International North-South uh, Transportation Corridor, again, Iran being there at the center. We see tech partnerships, uh, energy, new transportation corridors, currency swaps, new payment systems. So uh, I was just wondering first on your perspective, do, do you see this uh, economic, in, economic integration uh, as a key influence, something that's driving Iran's policies and vision for the future? And also, what do you see the role of Iran being in this wider transformation of the Eurasian space? You're absolutely correct. Uh, the, the events that we're seeing today, the economic uh, integration that is gradually taking place across Asia is profound. Uh, it has been going on for a while. The Chinese Belt and Road Initiative has uh, been pursued for a decade now. Uh, the whole idea came from uh, an article written by Professor Wang Jisoo at Beijing University. Uh, I think it translates in English marching westward or marching west, where uh, when after Obama spoke of pivoting to Asia, he wrote this article that China should pivot to the west, meaning Central Asia. After that, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, became Chinese government policy. And uh, now, especially, I think, after the war in Ukraine, many of these uh, changes have been uh, 
taking place at a much more rapid pace. In the past, Iran was, of course, sanctioned. Um, it was very difficult for Iran. And it was very difficult to convince countries like China or Russia and others uh, to break away from the uh, Western financial institutions because, of course, Iran is not a huge economic player. It was important. It continues to be important, but it wasn't an economic powerhouse. So the incentive for China and others to do something that could anger the Americans was limited. So countries would cooperate with Iran, but they would be very careful. Even the Belt and Road Initiative, that China was pursuing it when it came to Iran, even though Iran was a part of the Belt and Road Initiative, less work was done because the Chinese were cautious. But I believe that after the war in Ukraine began, things changed much more rapidly. First of all, we had a new administration in Tehran. Uh, president Raisi is different from the previous president, President Rouhani. President Rouhani, I would argue, looked more to the West. I wouldn't say President Raisi looks to the East, but I think Raisi, President Raisi looks to a a policy of Asian integration. And so the war in Ukraine coincided with the this new administration in Tehran coming to power. I was in Vienna, of course, during the negotiations when the war began. And I think even then I could see how things were changing when I was having discussions with certain colleagues uh, from Europe or journalists in Europe. We, you could already see how the future would be very different from the past. So after the war in Ukraine began, Russia changed. The situation in Russia changed dramatically. Russia became, like Iran, sanctioned, and it turned to Iran for help in with regards to dealing with sanctions. But also, as you pointed out, the development of the north-south corridor between Iran and Russia became much more important and much more uh, a sense of urgency uh, existed with regards to its development because Russia wanted to have alternative routes for trade. It both wanted to be able to trade with Iran, but also through Iran, trade in the Persian Gulf, and then use the Persian Gulf and to trade with India, Africa, and uh, Chinese ports, and other countries uh, across the world. And of course, the North-South Corridor provided Iran with an opportunity to have access to Russia uh, and um, the North Caucasus and Central Asia. So integration between Iran and Russia, economic integration and greater military and uh, political cooperation uh, grew very fast. At the, simultaneously, I would argue that the Chinese felt that now that it was both Iran and Russia, they needed to rethink many of their policies because after Iran and Russia, it would 
be China that's targeted. And China was, of course, being targeted by the United States, especially during the Trump years. During Obama, it began, but during the Trump years, the economic uh, warfare between the two countries expanded. So China began to change its policies towards both Iran and Russia. And that increased the pace of integration. The Belt and Road Initiative uh, became more important. The Iran-Chinese relationship, the Iran-Russian relationship. So Iran became, for Iran, suddenly these connections, the connecting North and South, East and West through Iran became a priority for the current administration. And, And right now the government is developing the roads and rails and the shipping at a much faster pace than before. Also, I think after the war in Ukraine, the war in Gaza uh, enhanced these relationships. I've been to Russia a couple of times over the past couple of months, and I've been to China a couple of times as well, and you can see that the mood has changed even further when it comes to the situation in Gaza. So there's much more cooperation and coordination between Iran and Russia and Iran and China and Russia and China. And of course, I think the Russians and the Chinese appreciate the fact that Iran has a very large sphere of influence. It has allies in Yemen and Lebanon and Syria and Iraq. And in Afghanistan, it has significant influence. And of course, the Persian Gulf is Run is right beside Iran, and that is where much of the world's energy comes from. So uh, you are absolutely correct. I think that uh, this integration is speeding up, and we saw it when Iran was became a part of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. It was manifested there, and again, more recently, when Iran joined BRICS, uh, I think, again, It showed that these countries, the core or the countries that set up BRICS, that they appreciated the role that Iran plays and that the role that Iran can play in future. So I think that it's very fair to say that uh, while Asian integration or South-South cooperation has been uh, increasingly discussed over the past couple of decades, but I think it's really U.S. policy that has pushed things in this direction so fast. The events that we've seen over the past couple of years have brought about dramatic change. And Iran has benefited a lot from this. Uh, Of course, it's sad to say that, in a way, because the war in Ukraine is a tragedy and the events in Gaza are heartbreaking, but that aside, uh, the tide has turned and the Iranians have broken out of isolation. Relations with regional countries have improved significantly, especially with Saudi Arabia. And uh, the Iranians and the Saudis were negotiating for uh, three years to reestablish ties. But there was always a sticking point. When the Chinese were asked by the Saudis to mediate and the Iranians subsequently accepted, 
the two sides spoke in Beijing, and the Saudis put aside that precondition, and ties were restored. So now Iran's relations with countries across Asia have improved significantly, but also in West Asia, the tensions have decreased. Uh, so I would say that a lot of this is due to U.S. policy, due to European policy, due to Israeli policies, and that they have actually brought countries closer to one another, countries that they would have rather kept apart. Mm. If I could ask about a little bit about the mood in amongst policymakers and about people in Iran, because um, as we've previously discussed on other occasions, I mean, Iran is witnessing this year a, a, an extraordinary change, almost a year of miracles. You've talked about the um, rapprochement with Saudi Arabia, which I, I think still took an awful lot of people by surprise. We've had this close convergence with the Russians. We've had a big arms deal with the Russians of a kind that the Russians, I can remember Alexander Fomin, the deputy defense minister of Russia, reassuring the Israelis that an arms deal of this nature between Russia and Iran would never happen. And yet here we see it, it has happened. China's developing its relations. You now have, I believe, a free trade agreement coming up with the Russians, coming up for signature in a few weeks. Um, and of course, the Chinese and the Russians are closely integrated with each other. And this, in a country that must have felt itself very much a fortress under siege, going all the way back to 1979. You've had a prolonged and very difficult war in the 1980s and uh, with um, Saddam Hussein's Iraq. You've had to worry about what might be happening in Iraq. You've had all the various threats of attacks from Israel, from the United States that have happened on many occasions. Um, and you've had... Uh, a, a concerted poli policy of economic strangulation, if you like. Do people in Iran generally understand how completely the situation has suddenly changed for Iran? And what do people, if you have any contact with them, people in government feel? Do they suddenly see opportunities, diplomatic uh, opportunities specifically, opening up for Iran? which never existed before. Yes, I think that people do in general feel that the walls surrounding Iran are cracking and collapsing. And they the, the joining the Shanghai Cooperation Organization was symbolic of that. Joining BRICS was also symbolic, perhaps even more significant. Uh, the symbolism there. But also I think that um, people see in general how countries in the region and major powers uh, across the globe are speaking with the Iranians. They're more keen on cooperating with the Iranians. There are signs of economic growth in the country that didn't exist for the past few years, the last two quarters. The country has experienced high economic growth. But at the same time, life is still difficult for most ordinary Iranians. The sanctions 
over the last decade have made life more much more difficult than before although i think that if someone from outside comes to iran or visits tehran or any other city they would be very surprised uh by how by the fact that it's uh a very developed that uh, it's very modern but when you live in tehran and you as a government employee or uh, ordinary people for many it's difficult to make ends meet largely due to the sanctions so we're still not uh, we're, or i think most people still are not seeing the benefits of the current situation but if it continues uh, i think that within a year or two things will uh, begin to become easier for people and we are already seeing investors coming in from china and russia into the country but in particular china who are keen on investing in the country so there are these changes taking place i think that government officials do appreciate what is going on because they are more deeply involved on a day-to-day -day basis with the changes that are taking place across the region and one other important thing that i should add is that the west and i mean western governments have they have been working very hard to undermine iran for decades as you've alluded to uh, they have a huge media apparatus in persian many tv channels many telegram channels they have many thousands of people who are working on iran uh just in in media and uh, working against iran you have more persian media outlets like, that are based outside the country and are hostile to the uh the state uh, than you have inside the country you know bbc voa iran international there are there are many and then as i said there are many online platforms as well and you there's also a cyber army that is where thousands of people are working in albania 24 hours a day against iran and and the list goes on you and you have terrorist organizations such as the mek and the monarchists and and um, uh, certain kurdish uh groups funded by the west alongside iran's borders with iraq or alongside the no man's land in pakistan near the iranian border that are constantly either carrying out terror attacks or or trying to create unrest inside the country so and i think it is unique uh, russia and china don't have this huge uh, anti russian or anti chinese chinese uh, media apparatus not because they're not as important but it's with iran it started a long time ago the antagonism towards russia is more recent it is in, i mean it is huge now but you know 10 years with, with iran this began 20 30 years ago and uh now i think that it's beginning to decrease the funding because one of the key tv channels uh that's anti-iran has is shutting down so i think they're probably redirecting funding towards bigger fish uh but in any case uh this um onslaught this um this um, psychological warfare against iranians has been going on for many years so on the one hand they strangle iranians through sanctions 
They threaten Iran, Iranians with military attacks. All options are on the table. And then you have this constant uh, media attack on Iranians where people are told day and night how miserable they are, how this is the worst country in the world. How, And uh, so this has, this has been going on for a, a, a very long time. And there is a class of Iranians, let's say pro-Western liberal class, that have been influenced by the West and influenced by this media. I have some of my students, some colleagues at university, they're very hostile or very critical of the state. I mean, the state institutions and often very pro-West. And they, because they've been under the influence of these media outlets. And also the problems that exist in Iran, uh, incompetence, corruption, just like everywhere else. But largely because of the influence of this Western media. But as a result of the war in Gaza and the role that Western countries have been playing in this genocide and and blocking a ceasefire or aiding uh, the Israeli regime, uh, the West has really destroyed its image among that class of Iranians that they were always counting on. So the 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 the, on the one hand, I think it's fair to say that these walls surrounding Iran are crumbling slowly or gradually. But on the other hand, I think that the damage that the West has done to itself in the eyes of Iranians, and I'm sure this is not just true about Iranians, I think this is true about across the globe. Uh, you know, whenever, for, let me give you a good example. Whenever the Iranians and the Chinese or the Iranians and the Russians want to agree on something. You have this huge online assault on that agreement, on the meeting between the two presidents, whether it's Iran and China or Iran and Russia, as examples. And how this is, uh, you know, this is going to hurt Iranian interests. This is going, this is terrible. Iran, Russia is the enemy. China is the enemy. And so you have a segment of Iranians, and then for example, they say the Russians are doing this in Ukraine and the Chinese are doing that to their Muslims. But now, regardless of whether any of that is true or not, but now people are seeing day and night what's going on in Gaza. So U.S. soft power has been, in my opinion, demolished. Mm. And I think that is something that is not easy to... Uh, Put a number on, or let's say, a, a, a you know, to, to calculate its its significance. But I think uh, it is going to create great harm to American interests in the months and years ahead across the globe, and 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 in particular in our region region, because I'm absolutely certain that this is not unique to ordinary Iranians. When I was in China just last week, mm -hmm. I was invited for a conference. I, I went to three different cities, and. Uh, in all my conversations, the Chinese were saying before Gaza, people in China, those who were interested in our region, uh, it was sort of 50-50. Some sympathize with the Israelis, some sympathize with the Palestinians. But that has all changed. Mm -hmm. People are overwhelmingly pro-Palestine. Mm -hmm. in, in my trips to Russia, you, the two of you know Russia as well as I, if not much mm -hmm. better. Uh, the mood across uh, among those who I speak with in Russia and I communicate with Ru in Russia and I and I meet in Russia mm -hmm. has changed significantly as well. So mm -hmm. 
this is not just about Israel. Uh, this is about the collective West. So what Israel does in Gaza reflects upon Berlin, it reflects upon Paris, it reflects upon London, but most importantly, it reflects upon Washington. I think you can put some figures on this, and that is by looking at the voting in the General Assembly, which is about the international situation. So we had a General, Secur General Assembly resolution on the 26th of October, calling for a humanitarian pause leading to a sustained end cessation of hostilities, complex use of language on the 26th of October. It attracted the support of 121 states. And two days ago, we had another stronger General Assembly resolution, which caused for a humanitarian ceasefire. It used the word ceasefire and it attracted the support of 153 states. So the number of states is growing and the language of the resolutions is hardening. And I think that is happening every day. Uh, uh, that trend is happening every day. And um, I don't know whether this is true. And I want to make it clear that I really don't know if this is true. But somebody who is well informed has told me that um, opinion polling in Russia is showing such strong sympathy for Palestine that the Kremlin itself is being telling the polling agencies, don't publish this because it's going to make problems for us with the Israelis. And one thing I can say is that Putin has spoken to Netanyahu on two occasions since the conflict began in Gaza. And both of those calls, but especially the last one, if you compare the readouts, the Russian and the Israeli ones, were becoming very tense and very difficult indeed. And go back a few years, it's not so long ago that I can remember Netanyahu invited to Moscow attending the Victory Day Parade on the 9th of May as the guest of honour. So you can see the huge shift that's happening in attitudes there. So I, I just wanted to just add those points. You can actually see illustrations to this uh, um, things. You can, up to a certain point, you can measure them, perhaps numerically in some respects, and certainly mood-wise as well. So can I just ask about Iran and its economic... Well, before I do that, actually, um, security situation is still difficult for Iran. You have a USS Navy carrier, as I understand. The Eisenhower is now in the Persian Gulf. There's said to be another um, submarine lurking around somewhere with lots and lots of cruise missiles. What is the mood about this in Iran? Are people worried that this might result in some kind of an attack on Iran? Is this a fear that people still have? Do they... Do the government people, do they see these actually very substantial American military deployments in the Middle East? Do they worry about them? Um, there's reports that there's been fighting in Iraq, in American bases and in Syria. And there's all sorts of confusing information about what's going on in the Red Sea. What do people in Iran feel about this? I mean, government people, people generally. We've been threatened by the Americans for decades now. We um, have seen the Americans 
you know, Amer different American presidents and secretaries of state or uh, defense secretaries use the phrase, all options are on the table many times. But I think as we've moved forward, uh, Iran has grown stronger, especially militarily. I think Russians would agree that Iran's uh, military technology and capabilities are very significant. And, um, and the United States, because of these never-ending wars, is not the United States of 30 years ago. In fact, I would argue, and this is you know, just an opinion, that the biggest tragedy for the American people was actually the victory over Saddam Hussein in Kuwait. Because, in my opinion, the ghosts of Vietnam made the United States a more cautious country. And after, of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union, but also this tremendous victory in Kuwait, which really wasn't all that important because Saddam didn't fight. I mean, we could discuss that in detail some other time, but what appeared to be a big victory, I think, sort of did away with the with the ghost of Vietnam and made America, the, the United States, very confident about its capabilities. And probably that had something to do with all these wars that we've been seeing, whether in Yugoslavia or in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and, uh, and elsewhere, or the dirty wars that we've seen like in Syria or Yemen and so on. But uh, I think uh, now the United States is not seen by ordinary Iranians as some imminent threat. In fact, U.S. assets in the Persian Gulf are very vulnerable. If the, if the United States really was serious about targeting Iran, the first thing that they would do is that they would remove uh, the aircraft carrier from the Persian Gulf because these uh, this, this is like the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s technology with missile cap the, the sort of missile technologies that we see today, the nature of war has changed and naval ships and the you know in the as they used to the role that they used to play traditionally, I think uh, their role in now is very different from the past. So I don't think that American ships in the Persian Gulf really have any they mean anything except for perhaps the opposite. They probably mean that nothing is going to happen. Uh, otherwise, they'd have to move all of those ships outside of Iranian missile range, which would be all the way to the Red Sea. And then, of course, you have Yemen in the Red Sea, so that's that still make that still makes things very difficult for the Americans. So I don't think anyone in Iran feels that any war is imminent. Iran doesn't want a war in the region. Uh, no one does, but uh, the Iranians and their allies will con you know will they'll support the palestinians and something that i should like to point out here is that i something that i've been saying for many years but i think many in the west at least among mainstream western politicians and uh mainstream western journalists uh, they fail to appreciate is that iran has powerful allies across the region and i'm Sure, that is a part of the American calculation when they refrain from striking from striking Iran. 
So Iran is both powerful at home, but it has powerful allies. But I have to stress that these are allies. You often hear how the 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 Ansarullah, or what the Americans and the Europeans call the Houthis, how they are in Yemen, how the, these people in Yemen are Iranian proxies, mm. or that Hezbollah is in the Iranian proxy, or that the Hashid or the resistance groups in Iraq, they're Iranian proxies, or or Hamas and Islamic Jihad, they're Iranian proxies. That I don't believe to be the case at all. And I think that is one reason why Iran is so powerful. The United States and many of its friends in the region, they do have a history of using proxies. But in the case of Iran, these are close relationships. These are allies. Iran doesn't tell San'a what to do. It doesn't tell Hezbollah in Lebanon what to do. It doesn't tell its allies in Iraq what to do. And that's why I think the Americans made a major miscalculation when they thought that by sanctioning Iran, the resistance across the region would collapse uh, because they would have a shortage of funding. I think they it, they really misunderstood the nature of the relationship. Mm-hmm. First of all, the amount of money spent in the region is is really almost nothing compared to the amount of money that the United States and its allies spend. But more importantly, is the fact that there is a there is a a bond that exists between these groups and organizations, and and, and in the case of Yemen, it's effectively a government uh, that brings them close together. And therefore, you see that, for example, San'a, or Yemen, is actively fighting alongside uh, the Gazans, or Hezbollah is uh, fighting in the north to keep part of the Israeli uh, army in the north so that they cannot uh, be used in Gaza. So this is a sort of, I would say, a bond that exists. These are allies and not proxies. If they were proxies, I think they would, the Americans would have had a much, they would have had, it wouldn't have been very difficult for the Americans to tear this uh, network apart. I just wanted to ask quickly um, on the relationship between the, the evolving relationship between Iran and Russia, because I guess, uh, unlike you know Iran and China, the the history of Russia and Iran has been you know burdened with more uh, yeah problems in its path, uh, you know mutual conflicts. Uh, but you also mentioned before, in after you know America said it would pivot to the uh, to Asia to you know, contain China, that's when the Chinese began to march west. But the year after, in two thousand fourteen, when the West uh, supported the coup in Ukraine. That's effectively when the Russians began to march east. They they decided then that you know Europe didn't work anymore. That they mm. had to you know connect their economy closer with Asia instead. So similar ideas that what the Chinese had, mm. and of course uh, I see similar ideas of course being uh, prevalent in in Iran that you know modernization and economy can't uh, depend on the West obviously given the history of sanctions, uh, but. But for the Russians, this meant when they started to look east instead of west, that suddenly uh, the relationship with Iran had a very different role. Suddenly, it's not something you can trade away. It became, you know, a, a key core or a pillar of this uh, greater Eurasian partnership they had envisioned. Because you can't build greater Eurasia without 
Iran. So suddenly they went from being, you know, almost peripheral to being its one of its main partners. Uh, so you know, when they intervened in uh, in Syria to prevent uh, the regime change there, uh, then of course they partnered up with Iran, and you know this had a limited uh, purpose. And uh, you know, I remember in Moscow, many people were speaking about how uh, how the objective should be to convert this very limited. Uh, uh, cooperation in Syria with uh, Iran to something wider, something more yeah, strategic, encompass uh, a wider area of interest to make sure that interests are harmonized and deal with the areas where they do not harmonize. Uh, but um, I was just wondering, I, I kind of seen it from the Russian perspective. I was just wondering, what is the views in Iran? Is this is this still a relation with I I Russia? Is it still something that's a bit divisive in society among government? Is there some worry about uh, too much economic dependence on, on the Russians, the military cooperation? Is this uh, what, what are the thoughts uh, around these topics? Yes, you're you're absolutely correct. Uh, Iran and Russia do have a history, and uh, there there has always been sensitivity uh, towards uh, or with regards to the Iran-Russian relationship, and those that. Western media apparatus that I was speaking about earlier puts a lot of focus on this. It constantly reminds people about Russia's role in the past in Iran. Of course, it's ironic that most of these media outlets are based in London, and the British, you know, their their activities in Iran were not exactly benign. But and they are right now among you know these are the countries that are sanctioning Iran. But still, they do constantly try to play upon these fault lines and to create as much division as possible and to impede progress in the relationship between Iran and Russia. And, uh, and uh, I would say that they, they, the Iranians and the Russians have a, a long way to go still to create greater understanding between the two peoples. We don't have, for example, a Russian TV channel in Iran that is directed towards a Russian-speaking audience. The Russians don't have a Persian-language uh, TV network that explains Russia to to Iranians, whereas the BBC, VOA, and either you know Deutsche Welle, the French, they all have. As I said, they they spend a lot of resources on this. So. Uh, there, there is a lot that the two have to do, and also they have to be careful about the past and how to 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 deal with that history that existed. But I think you're you're also absolutely correct that things the things I think changed in in phases. I think the collapse of the Soviet Union changed the the nature of the relationship uh, because. The Soviet Union was always seen as a threat. It was our, they were, it was our, you know, our borders to the north. What it was the Soviet Union, what is now Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, the Caspian, of course, and uh, Turkmenistan. This was all the Soviet Union. So our neighbor to the north was the Soviet Union and no one else. Uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, I think that sense of fear or concern that existed, it was swept away and the relationship began to grow but very slowly because russia itself was in crisis and then when russia began to 
mm-hmm. rebuild itself, oh, especially over the last couple of decades, um, I think its focus was largely on the West. Mm-hmm. And the same is true, I think, with Iran. The Iranians were still, we were still in a different world back then. The Iranians were trying to rebuild or, you know, try to preserve their relations with the West. Um and uh, the focus wasn't on bilateral relations. In fact, the North-South transport corridor, which is becoming very important now to both President Putin and President Raisi, and they speak regularly on the phone. They speak every few, you know, three, four weeks uh, with each other on the phone, and they meet regularly as well. Uh, a lot of the conversation, a lot of the discussion is about the North-South corridor. But this was actually something that the two sides agreed upon a long time ago, but the it wasn't really pursued. I'm not sure if it's mostly the fault of Iran or Russia. I think it's probably Iran's fault more than Russia's. Uh, but I think it wasn't a priority anyway back then. But still, Russia no longer had that image that existed with regards to the Soviet Union. Then in Syria, when when the Russians decided to, to join and General Soleimani went to, to Moscow and President Putin agreed to send uh, military forces to Syria, and especially the Russian Air Force, which played a big role. That was very important for Iran, because Iran would have lost a lot more lives if it wasn't for the Russian Air Force. The Russian Air Force played a great role in defeating ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and Iran was mostly on the ground. And, you know, so if Iran, if it wasn't for the Russian Air Force, I think a lot we would have had a lot more people sacrificed to defeat ISIS and Al-Qaeda. But more importantly, in in, in the long run, uh, is the fact that the two armed forces began to mingle. They began to know each other better. They began to cooperate with each other. They'd help each other. They'd save each other, their their soldiers, in under circumstances. Mm-hmm. So that pushed things forward. But I think the biggest push by far, the biggest change was, was the war in Ukraine. And Russia refocusing its relationship, mm. its relationships altogether, because the West was now a dead end, and the Russians had to rethink. And also, it made sense. Uh, it made sense for the North-South Transport Corridor, for example, whether Russian relations with Europe or the United States were normal or not. It made sense to create this alternative route, but it wasn't a priority because I think traditionally people. Viewed the world in Eurocentric terms. So they didn't see the importance of having the Belt and Road or the North South Transport Corridor back then as much as they do now. Mm-hmm. So often something that's really, you know, it's it's right in front of your eyes and you should see it, you often are blind to it. And then when circumstances change, you suddenly realize that you have some huge potential in front of you that you never really explored or noticed before. Can I just add little historical context to some of the points made, which is that, of course, talking about Iran-Iranian relations with Russia, the problems in them, it might just be worth pointing out to some of our viewers that in 1907, Iran was actually divided into spheres of influence by the British and the Russians. They actually... You know, said, you know, this is country where Russians are going to have the north and the British will have the south. So, and there's been many wars 
before that in the 18th and 19th century between Iran and Russia. And at the time of the Tehran conference in 1943, of course, there were Soviet troops and British troops in Tehran. So I mean, there is a very long and very complex relationship between Iran. So, for example, there's a very famous photo mm. of um, mm. the president of the United States, the president of Russia, and the prime minister of England uh, in the, during the Second World War. Uh, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin in Tehran. But they, when they came to Tehran, they ignored the Shah of Iran. He was, they didn't even, he wasn't even invited to the meeting or even invited to have a photo opportunity with them. Yeah. So Iran was never a colony no. like most many other countries, but Iran had some very low points uh, in history. And these those years, that era, uh, the the early nineteenth century, the mid nineteenth century, uh, these were these were times when Iran was foreign influence was huge. And as you rightly point out, the north was uh, under Russian occupation, and the south basically under British occupation. So that history exists. But it, it's interesting how the British and the West play on this these historical facts to try to divide Iran and Russia in Iran in the, through their Persian media, but they somehow don't seem to take note of the fact that they were very much a part of it, if not much more uh, than the Russians. And as I said earlier, today it's not the Russians who are sanctioning Iran, it's, it's no. these Western countries. Can, can I ask about uh, Iran's relations with Central Asia? Because of course, Iran has a huge history in Central Asia. I mean, it's perhaps, not something that the Uzbek government wants to acknowledge, but Samarkand, for example, people I know people from there. They tell me that the, the language that people speak there is Persian, for example. And Afghanistan, again, it's very much part of the Persian sphere. Um, we don't hear very... We, 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 we think of Iran very much being involved in the Middle East, in the Arabian Peninsula, in the events in Palestine, in Syria. But of course, it's a very strategically located place because you've got Central Asia to the north, you've got the Caucasus, you've got Turkey, you've got Afghanistan. It, it is, the Tur Turkey has been making big, trying to make big moves in Central Asia. Uh, now that this relationship with Russia has been to a great extent resolved, Will Iran be looking to develop some of its historic relationships with the Central Asian states too, with Tajikistan, where they also speak, as I understand it, a form of Persian? Um, will this is is this something that people in Iran are talking about? Because again, if you look at the geography, it, it, it seems to me that the advantages of this are very obvious and very clear. Yes, I think that, again, the current administration, because of its differing worldview than the previous administration, or at least the two presidents are different, um, I I don't think everyone in the previous administration had identical views to the president. I don't think that's what the previous, I think the previous foreign minister, Dr. Zarif and President Rouhani were not this, of the same view. So I'll just say the two presidents. I think uh, the difference between President Raisi and President Rouhani may automatically made Central Asia 
a much higher priority for Iran. And uh, when Iran went to join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, it was actually in Samarkand. And I, I, I did accompany the delegation. And it was clear that the two presidents, when they met before the uh, meeting of the heads of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, that they were both keen on uh, pushing relations to a, a new level. And with the Belt and Road Initiative, of course, that makes a lot of sense because they are these, these countries are between Iran and China. But also, the North-South Corridor runs, part of it runs to the east of the Caspian Sea. So to the west of the Caspian Sea, it runs through Azerbaijan. It also runs through the Caspian Sea uh, from a Russian port to an Iranian port. But also it runs through uh, the east uh, where it goes through Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan. So Central Asia is very important for Iran's policy of South-South cooperation, Asian uh, integration, but also uh, what President Raisi is pushing for of close neighborly ties. So it, it has changed. I think Turkey's influence in Central Asia is limited because the language isn't the same. Uh, they have their own languages. Some do speak Persian, some speak um, a, a type of Turkish, which is not the same as uh, Istanbul. Actually, in uh, Uzbekistan, the, the, the Turkish language is much closer to our Azeri language. My, my, my family name, Marandi, is, is, means from Marand. Marand is an Azeri city in Iran. So in many ways, that the Iran is uh, both linguistically but definitely um, geographically uh, much more adequately located for improving uh, economic ties, for expanding these ties. And I think that uh, this is something that is happening. Turkmenistan has huge gas resources, and the Iranians and the Russians want to create a sort of triangle between these countries so that they can work together on the gas market, and then maybe with also Qatar later on, although um, Qatar is a, is a bit different. But uh, there is a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, since Russia is now sanctioned and Iran is sanctioned, the incentive for Central Asian countries to work with Iran is greater because al these alternative means of business is no longer something that has to do with Iran and Central Asia. It's also Central Asia and Russia. And as I said, the same, just like in the case of China, where they have to now, they're starting to rethink how to do business uh, to protect themselves from Western sanctions or financial institutions or SWIFT and so on. This is, uh, this is also happening with all of Iran's partners, especially those partners that have a lot of business to do with both Iran and Russia. So things are changing fast, but, but uh, there's still a very long way to go. Iran's, yeah. I think Iran has uh, not been successful in, um, in developing trade relations in the past. Iran has a very big bureaucracy a very burdensome, uh, it, it creates a burden, I think, often 
and prevent um, investment and uh, and and trade. But that is changing. That is gradually changing. We are seeing serious Chinese investors coming to the country. We are seeing seeing tariffs. Uh, um, as you, as at the beginning of the program, I think Glenn alluded to, uh, tariffs are going to fall for many of the goods uh, mm. between Iran and Russia, Armenia, and and um, other countries in Central Asia. Uh, so things are changing. It's it's not as fast as I would like, but mm. things are changing pretty fast. And again, a lot of this has to do with. The, the stupidity of the policies of the United States and Europe. Mm -hmm. If I, if I would, if I would be able to name the number one reason why all these changes are taking place, I would say it is the policies mm -hmm. of the United States. Mm. Bureaucratic bu bureaucratization in economies is often a consequence of the fact that economies are under intense external pressure. Yes, it means that the true. government has to control the economies and that causes them to develop bureaucracies in order to do this. So if trade opens up, bureaucratization sometimes ends. Can I just ask you to talk a bit about Iran's economy itself? Because a lot of people, I think, are not familiar with realities about Iran. You mentioned the fact that if people come to Iran, they're struck by what an advanced and modern country it is. Now, I've never been to Iran myself, but I've actually had many discussions with many people who have done Westerners, and they have all made precisely that observation to me, that it is, in fact, it's got a, you know, a very significant industrial base, in fact, a, 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 an expanding industrial base, it produces a large variety of products. It's potentially agriculturally very rich. What it has lacked is not expertise and uh, you know infrastructure and those kind of things. It's lacked investment more than anything else. But could you perhaps speak to that a bit? <laughs> yes. You uh, first of all, what you said about bureaucracy is absolutely correct. Iran, especially in the 1980s had to expand the bureaucracy uh often it's it's all it's not only because when you're under pressure when countries are under pressure they have to have a bit bigger bureaucracy and more control but also you hire people who uh, under you know they, they who don't have jobs and during wartime and during economic difficulties if people don't have jobs that becomes a problem in itself so the sanctions and the the war uh, that we had in the 1980s these helped expand the bureaucracy but uh, that is changing the recently there were uh, over the past year i would say um, you there are a number of quite a few serious businesses coming from china to iran to invest and the reason is that they they have been saying that there hasn't been investment in Iran for a decade. And so there are many more opportunities in Iran than other parts of the world. And Iran has a highly educated uh, youth. Uh, it's strategically located and it has enormous underground wealth. And the price of energy in Iran, natural gas uh, and uh, and gasoline, 
is is very low. So it's very good for businesses. Um, gasoline for ordinary Iranians is like three cents, four cents, like uh, a liter, which I think would you know uh, be un something that just people in Europe at least cannot even comprehend. So uh, these do create enormous opportunities for these investors. And so we are seeing this change. I, I think that if things continue as they are, within the next two or three years, you're going to see a lot of investment in Iran. But there's always been this fear. I mean, just as an anecdote, I recall once I invited a two professors for to come to the University of Tehran for a program we had. And one was from uh, a university in New York. And he brought a big, uh, very heavy suitcase. And uh, I, uh, the, 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 the university driver who took him to his place of stay told me that I, I couldn't even lift the suitcase. And then when I met him the next day, I said, by the way, why was your suitcase so heavy? And he said, he was sort of embarrassing. He said, it's like full of canned food. And I said, you know, I asked him, why did you bring canned food? And he said, well, you know, I wasn't sure if there was food. <laughs> well, you know, if you go to a supermarket in Tehran, it's very much like a supermarket in Moscow or in London or in Paris. There's everything there. But, you know, often people... Or, or when the war in Gaza began, actually, I was invited to a a, a, a dinner uh, where there were a number of uh, Chinese, uh, influential Chinese uh, academics and um, Chinese uh, people close to the government. And they invited me to a dinner. And during the dinner, someone, one of them was, someone called from, uh, Beijing and spoke to one of the Chinese uh, friends at the table and said, you should come back immediately. There's a war in Iran because they thought that if, you know, since there's fighting in Gaza, that somehow there's fighting in Tehran. So the image that has been created over the last four decades or the securitization of Iran uh, in the West has, has created this fear. But those walls are crumbling too, because uh, the world is changing so fast, and I think the credibility of Western media is also uh, dented, to say the least. I mean, it's it's far more than that. Uh, and and now countries have their own media. It's not like when I was young, and it was Reuters and Associated Press, and later on CNN or the BBC, where people got their information. Russia has its own media uh, networks. It has its own, you know, online. You have all sorts of people in Russia, in China. There are all sorts of alternative media um, that, that are interested in our region and that have their own perspective. So I think attitudes towards Iran have changed a lot. And that if it they hadn't changed, these investors wouldn't have come to Iran any in the first place. I think the very fact that these in, these private investors are coming to Iran shows that these attitudes are changing. And um, again, we don't know what is going to happen in future. Uh, the war in Gaza mm. uh, 
could expand. The Netanyahu may do something foolish uh, alongside the border in uh, with Lebanon. But uh, as things stand, I think that uh, there are lots of opportunities that uh, that are that the Iranians are going to be able to benefit from in the coming months and years. Mm. On the topic, of, oh, sorry. Uh, on, on on the topic of war, though, is there any way? Do you see any possible scenario in which uh, Iran would be pulled into a wider regional war, either uh, in Syria or if uh, if if the war would escalate uh, currently, you know, in Gaza or uh, I know the in the United States the rhetoric is, you know, they assume that. Iran is the big puppet master pulling all the strings between, you know, but also, you know, possibly Yemen. I mean, is there any, do you see any path in which this could actually spread or is this, uh, uh, do you see it as being contained, all of these different conflicts? Well, I know you know this, and but I just want to repeat this for, for your audience that I am not a member, I have no I, I do not play a role in the Iranian government. My views are my own. But I think it's very obvious that Iran fully supports the resistance in Gaza. Iran supports Hamas. Iran supports uh, the other groups, Islamic Jihad. And I think it's quite clear that the capabilities of the Palestinians to defend themselves, that they have to do with Iran, and Iran will continue to support them. That's I think uh, the Iranians are... are they're proud of that. And as we speak, the Iranians will continue to support them. The Iranians, you know, before the revolution itself, and during the years where there was resistance in Iran against the Shah, uh, two key foreign policy issues for the revolutionaries, uh, including uh, Ayatollah Khomeini uh, and, and his people especially, uh, were apartheid South Africa and Palestine. These were issues that were key before the revolution and key criticisms directed towards the Shah uh, with regards to foreign policy before the revolution. So, and of course, Iran broke off ties both with Israel and with apartheid South Africa after the revolution and after the collapse of the apartheid regime in South Africa, Iran established ties with that country and has very good ties with it. But in the, in, so Iran's support for Palestine is 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 not new, and uh, but I don't think that as things stand, any of the major players have a vested interest in expanding the war. Israel, of course, I don't. I mean, they would. I probably Netanyahu would like to expand the war, but I don't think anyone who's a decision maker in Washington wants the war to expand. Because let's let's imagine that it does expand. The more intense the fighting becomes, the more chances are for further uh, developments and, 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 and events that could trigger even a further expansion of the war. So let's say somehow the Americans strike Iranian targets somewhere for some reason. That would change everything altogether, because Iran would strike back, and uh, those countries in the region which Iran has good relations with, they host American bases. And so, if the 
but if the Americans attack Iran, then those countries will be seen as hosting a hostile entity. And that could lead to the destruction of their infrastructure, which would mean that there would be no more oil and gas coming from the Persian Gulf region. And I think Iran's drone and missile capabilities, and especially the fact that Iran has been preparing itself for some sort of confrontation with the United States for decades, means that there is a balance of terror. In other words, sort of like between the United States and the Soviet Union before, where there's a balance of terror, where both could destroy one another. Therefore, they were it made them smart enough not to do anything really stupid. I think there is a sort of balance of terror now between Iran and the United States, where both sides know that a war would be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. So the both sides have a vested interest in containing the violence. But of course, Iran will continue to support Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah, and others, because Iran believes them to be mm-hmm. legitimate resistance organizations. Uh, remember, Hezbollah was actually, I'm, I know you know this, but I'm just saying this for some in your audience who may not, not know, although I know your audience is very politically aware. But Hezbollah was created during the Israeli occupation of Lebanon when they took uh, the capital, Beirut. So it was a national resistance organization which ultimately expelled uh, the Israeli regime from almost all of Lebanon. Uh, I say almost all of Lebanon because there's a small piece of Lebanese territory that's still occupied by the Israelis. And the same is true with Ansarullah. Or in the case of Iraq, Iran's, again, this is, you know, it's really extraordinary what American and NATO policy has done. Iran and Iraq fought eight years of war. I was a volunteer in that war. I've been shot. I have shrapnel wounds. And I I was injured twice with chemical weapons, chemical weapons that were given to Saddam by the West. They gave him also the military intelligence to to use those weapons and the political cover to get away with it. But that aside, so Iran and Iraq never had really good relations. When the Americans invaded Iraq, that relationship evolved and it became much better, something detrimental to U.S. policy. But when the West began the dirty war in Syria, and then ISIS this spilled over into Iraq, and Iraq was about to collapse. The Iranians and the Iraqis fought together against ISIS. And that changed the relationship completely between the two countries, because mm-hmm. their blood was spilt together against this, you know. So we were fighting before, thanks to Saddam and his allies, but now they were fighting alongside one another. So the relationship between Iran and Iraq is a very different relationship today than ever before. Mm. And therefore, I I think that the the West recognizes, the United States recognizes that war with Iran or conflict with Iran would ultimately lead to the expulsion of the United States from West Asia. But it would come at a horrific price for the international community and for everyone. So Iran doesn't want war. The United States doesn't want war. But Iran will continue to support Palestine, and the United States will continue to support Israel. Um, Thank you for that, and that very good explanation. Can I just ask, because, of course, 
we've been discussing about the the economic links, the trading links that are now developing, the fact that the the, the walls have now coming down, that Iran is now finding its way economically in ways that it has not been able to do before. But of course, for all this to develop, um, one would need a certain security that there would be a long-term peace, peace in the Middle East, peace in the regions. Now, there's this crisis in Gaza at the moment. There's this urgent push in the United Nations, in which Iran is fully involved. By the way, the Iranians have been very um, clear about what they want. They want to see a ceasefire in Gaza. Most of the international community agrees. It is the United States that is isolated at this present time on this issue, not Iran. There's also, I think, a widespread sense around the world that American diplomacy has not been successful, to put it mildly, in terms of the Palestinian-Israeli issue. And we're starting to hear increasingly people talking about a peace conference, an international conference bringing together many players to uh, see a way towards a long-term, sustainable, just solution of this conflict. Do you think this is something that Iran might be interested in and might support? I mean, it's a big question, but um, I, I just thought I'd make, put it. Well, I'm really sorry for all my long answers. This one is going to be a bit long and I'm not very charismatic. So I hope I don't bore your listeners and I don't. Yeah. I hope it doesn't reflect poorly on your show for having a boring uh, uh, guess. But I think... Uh, if we look at the South Africa, uh, the Iranian position on South Africa, I think we can learn a lot from that. The Iranians believe that apartheid in South Africa has to end, but Iran didn't believe that white South Africans have to leave or that white South Africans were should be punished. It, the Iranians believe that there should be rapprochement and that South Africa should be South Africa for all South Africans. The belief in Iran when it comes to Palestine and the conflict there is the same. Iran doesn't believe that, uh, first of all, a two-state solution is possible because the West Bank has been so deeply colonized uh, and by the most hard line of Zionists that the it's just... It's not an option. They're they're not going to leave. Like I think there are like seven hundred thousand of them right now, and they are really hardcore uh, anti-Arab Zionists. So the two-state solution, as things stand, is not really an option. But also, even if it were an option, hypothetically speaking, for the Iranians, there are two questions that would remain. And that is that what happens to the millions of Palestinians who are in refugee camps, not the refugee camps in Gaza, because as you know, 70% of the Palestinians in Gaza are actually people who were expelled from their homes in, in the rest of Palestine. Uh, they were ethnically cleansed and take and they had to go to Gaza. But I mean, the refugees that are in Lebanon, I've been to their refugee camps uh, 
in Syria, again, I've been to refugee, uh, a very huge refugee camp in Syria, and of course, in Jordan, and if, and there's the Palestinian diaspora. Their right of return is not something that can be, morally speaking, ignored. And also, there's the issue of equal rights for those Palestinians who've, for whatever reason, agreed to acquire Israeli citizenship. They are not, I mean, um, President, former President Jimmy Carter, when he wrote his book on apartheid in Palestine, his focus was actually on, if I recall, I didn't read the whole book, but if I recall, his focus was actually on the um, Palestinians. A lot of the focus of the book was on Palestinians inside the, the 1967 borders. So there are lots of issues at play, but to 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 make it easier, or let me say to respond to questions that I'm sure many have, because many people in the West they think that in Iran they're executing people on you know on the street corners, and they're you know and I don't know gays are being executed and uh, the Jews are being in Iran in Tehran we have. I've never seen an execution before, by the way, anywhere in Iran. But, uh, but uh, th this is all, you know, narrative, Western narratives. But uh, in Iran, in Tehran, we have restaurants that are kosher. We have synagogues. We have uh, a Jewish population that exists in many of Iran cities. And we have a Jewish MP. In fact, according to the Iranian constitution, there must be a Jewish MP in parliament. So if there's only one Jew in Iran, that Jew will, will be an MP. And if there are no Jews one day in Iran, they'll have to bring someone to, I guess, to fulfill that role. So Jews have to be in Iranian parliament, just like Christians have to be in the Iranian parliament uh, by law. They have to be represented, no matter how small their community is. So Iran is not hostile to the Jewish population in Palestine. What it's hostile to is ethno-supremacism, racism, uh, and and of course the ethnic cleansing and and uh, genocide that is ongoing at a very rapid pace, not only in Gaza, by the way, what's going on in the West Bank is really, really terrible, especially after October the 7th. But Iran does not seek to expel anyone from Palestine. What Iran wants is to have the whole of Palestine to be uh, a an area where Muslims, Christians, and Jews can live together. It's not something that's going to happen tomorrow, but I think the Iranians believe that Israel has, the situation in the region has changed dramatically for Israel. Israel, and this is something that I've noticed in China, that Israel is no longer seen as a strong country. The Chinese no longer, for example, see Israel as a high-tech country and a powerful country. They, they don't see, they're actually quite surprised by its weakness and its inability to even win this battle in Gaza. And I don't think there's going to be any more Chinese investment in, in Israel. That's at least what Chinese, the Chinese who I speak to say. And, and some Israelis are leaving, and, but, but also public opinion has shifted against Israel across the world. And, there, and, one, and a segment of that population across, that we see 
now speaking out against Israel is actually the Jews. And I I should stress that some of the most um, heroic figures who are standing up for Palestinian rights uh, and the people of Gaza are Jews. And uh, and some of them I'm very proud to be their friends, uh, personal friends. But in any case, the, the world has shifted. And while it's impossible to predict the future, I think that it is going to be increasingly difficult for Israel in the years ahead to maintain the status quo. I think it will be impossible. So even though right now the Israeli population is totally against, I mean, they're actually very much pro this pro-genocide from what we are hearing in the polls. But I think that the situation in the region and the world uh, is changing. The West is declining pretty rapidly. Uh, the world is turning against the Israeli regime. Many, many J- Jews across the world are playing a heroic role in opposing apartheid and opposing genocide. I think the years ahead will will force change upon the regime. And hopefully, I mean, at, at the moment, I don't see the future. It's dark and today it's it's very dark what we're seeing today but uh, i'm optimistic that ultimately uh, ultimately our region will see peace professor morandi we have many many more things to discuss and say but i'm afraid uh, time calls for me and i'm sorry to to finish but this is a good place in some ways to finish because the dark often comes before the dawn <laughs> as, as uh, people oh, often so. say especially in the middle east and as you correctly said, I think this is indisputably true. The world is changing, and the world is changing in ways faster than anybody expected. And um, one point I should say, I, I would actually like to push back on a little, because you spoke about Iran, or the changes around Iran, Iran having benefited from changes that have happened around the world. But one mustn't underestimate as well the role that the Iranians themselves have played, the fact that they've done their outreach, that they've conducted their diplomacy, that they've met and spoken with the Russians, they've met and spoken with the Chinese, they've been active in all sorts of places, putting their case. And I think that Iran has a significant role to play in the future, in the Middle East, in Central Asia, in Eurasia, and in other things, and no doubt we'll be talking about all those things again. So on my part, I just have to say I have to go and I have to say thank you for your wonderful program. Thank you, Alexander. I agree completely. I, I think that Iran has capitalized very cleverly uh, when it comes to the, the mistakes made by a far more powerful uh, United States. It's uh, sort of a battle between David and Goliath. So Iran, yes, they did play very, they did play uh, their cards very well, uh, and let's see how things play in the months and years ahead. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, thanks Thank again you. for your time, and uh, yeah, just like to say, I, I agree. I think the world is transforming very quickly, and to fully appreciate it, one has to have a close eye at Iran as well. So, uh, thank you again for being so generous with your time. Thank you, Glenn.